0: giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. The House of Representatives passed the Invest in America Act last Friday, the $1 trillion bipartisan legislative package that is focused primarily on pure infrastructure areas. Since the Senate already passed the package in August, the bill is ready to be signed into law by President Biden, which is expected to occur sometime next week. The bill is separate from the Build Back Better Act, Democrats' reconciliation package that continues to undergo changes. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NHU's Chris Hartman and John Green are here to discuss the passage of the INVEST Act and provide updates on the Build Back Better bill. Additionally, Marcy Buckner is also here to discuss a very important webinar that NAHU hosted earlier this week. So welcome back to the podcast, guys. As we mentioned, the INVEST Act passed the House last week. We've been primarily discussing the reconciliation bill recently. So can you remind folks what sorts of provisions were included in this bipartisan legislation?
1: Thanks, Dan. So this is essentially what people call the bipartisan infrastructure bill. It did pass the Senate with 69 total votes in the House. It was a little more partisan, but 13 Republicans did vote for the legislation. And to be honest, with the opposition of groups like the SQUAD to the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, it would not have been able to pass the House of Representatives on Democratic votes alone. And so this piece of legislation primarily does deal with infrastructure, bridges, roads, airports, ports. There is some that, depending on how we define the word infrastructure, is a little less traditional. Things such as broadband are also included very heavily in this area. And so this will be the largest investment in infrastructure in the United States in a generation and is expected, as you said, to be signed by the president next week. They're holding it off because Congress is not in session this week or at least floor session. There are several committee hearings and committee markups going on this week, but they are not back in Washington for a traditional floor session, and the president wants to allow people to be able to join him for the signing ceremony, and I think it's very important in his mind that the signing ceremony be as bipartisan as the bill, and those senators and House members, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle who voted for the bill, they would love to see them at the event. And so that will take place next week. When it comes to what NHU does and our work within the realm of healthcare, there isn't a lot. However, I do want to point out one provision that is in the bill. And that is on the drug rebating rule that was put out that would essentially have eliminated Medicare Part D drug rebating as a practice by the pharmaceutical industry with the hopes that that would lower prescription drug prices. We did have several meetings with the administration that expressed some concerns that, okay, drug price rebates might be eliminated, but what's going to actually force the pharmaceutical companies then in turn to lower their prices? Also, many self-insurers and others rely on those rebates. This puts a moratorium on that rebating rule for three years. So the original concept was if we eliminated rebating altogether, then you wouldn't have this money coming back, sitting possibly with middlemen, and the pharmaceutical companies would just lower their prescription drug prices. I think some of our members, particularly who worked very closely with TPAs and who work in the self-insurance field and others, were just very concerned that, okay, we eliminate rebating, but why would the prices come down? What is the motivation to actually lower the prices? And there was no hammer on the prescription drug companies to actually lower prescription drugs costs if we eliminated these rebates. And so that was the concern that many health insurance agents and brokers had out there I think part of the
2: Trump administration's motivation here was to eliminate all the fog. How did they get the rebate? How did they get to that number? But we do know that employers really liked getting those rebate checks, and they factor that into their calculus, part of their bottom line. And if they were to disappear, that would blow a big hole in their budgets. I think that is what motivated them to do it in the first place. But what's interesting is that the rebate rule was never implemented. And yet it became a scorable item. And so uh, CBO scored it and therefore they're going to take those savings. I'm not, I have a beef with that. It's just that it was actually never really implemented. So it's just funny that you can do that.
1: Yeah, I, I get the idea of scoring it for future savings. I think one thing that we find a little concerning is using those savings in an area that's not healthcare related. So, generally speaking, if you make some sort of offset or cut within your subject matter, this being healthcare, that money goes back into healthcare. And so they try to keep everyone in silos. We are a little concerned that this money within healthcare is going to now pay for transportation as opposed to paying for healthcare. It is also important to note that a complete repeal of that rule is included in the reconciliation build back better legislation. So, if that passes, then the drug rebating rule would be eliminated permanently. But that is the main healthcare provisions. Obviously, infrastructure and being able to get to and from places and the internet is tangentially related to healthcare. We can't do things like telemedicine if you do not have proper broadband. This is part of the problem, I think, when you try to do telemedicine via video and others in both. Rural and very urban America lacks a lot of that broadband. So I think there's aspects that affect healthcare in here, but it is still primarily a transportation bill overall.
2: And from a Republican perspective, you may recall that initially there was talk about linking passage of one tied to the other because infrastructure has always been a bipartisan, popular kind of bill to do. And I think, you know, broadband, as Chris said, is a prominent feature of the infrastructure bill, and it's very popular on both sides of the aisle. And delinking them now allowed more Republicans to support the bill. I think that had they continued to be linked, I wouldn't have counted five members on one hand to, to vote for this. So I think that helped get that across the finish line.
1: Yeah, John's correct. The Progressive Caucus particularly was trying to link the two bills for fear that moderate Democrats would just decide that they don't need to pass any reconciliation bill, any Build Back Better. And they were attempting to hold it as leverage over people like Kristen Sinema, Joe Manchin, Blue Dog Democrats, and others. I personally always thought this was a somewhat weak leverage that they were trying to hold over them because I don't think any of them particularly felt that they needed this bill to pass immediately. I also think, you know, some of the passage that happened recently and the Democrats' desire to get some of this done is probably also related to the elections that took place a week ago on Tuesday where Democrats went down to big defeat in Virginia and had very close margins in New Jersey. And we saw close local races across the country. And so I think there is some motivation to show that they are getting some things done. And that was partly why I think you did see that delinking, as John's talking about, that this bill was sitting, had passed the Senate quite a while ago at this point now and was really just sitting in the House waiting to go.
0: So when we last spoke about the reconciliation package you guys pointed out that a provision to lower prescription drug costs was not included in the White House's framework, but that it would likely return to the bill in the future. So this past week, a provision on drug costs was indeed inserted into the reconciliation bill once again. So could you go into detail on what those provisions would do?
1: Sure. So there was a prescription drug provisions that were inserted after the release of the framework. It is not as big, broad, or produces much savings as H.R. 3. However, there was some Medicare prescription drug price negotiations included in there. It is not as broad and as big as H.R. 3, but this will be the first time that Medicare is negotiating prescription drug prices. So what the bill does is it allows within Medicare Part B and D, the Secretary to negotiate up to 10 drugs.
2: The negotiations would begin in 2023, and the prices would take effect in 2025. But in 2028, that number would jump to 20 drugs.
1: And those drugs are the highest grossing ones within Part D and D programs after an exclusivity period of nine years for small molecule drugs and 12 years for biologic drugs go by. So Medicare can't start negotiating a really expensive drug right away. And so then Medicare does have the ability after that time period has gone to negotiate the most expensive drugs out there. There is quite the heavy excise tax included which kind of gives the the real power in this negotiation to the secretary because if they don't, the level of taxation that would be on that drug would sort of wipe out all of their profits. Now, this only applies to Medicare Part B and D. This does not apply across all markets, which is concerning to NHU. We do worry about the possibility of pharmaceutical companies raising the cost of these drugs within the employer sphere or the individual market because it is being lowered in B and D. And so that is one of the things that we want to look at Like I said, this is a considerably smaller amount of drugs that can be considered for Medicare negotiated prices. There are other pieces to this. One that is applying to all markets is inflation rebates. So this will stop the price of prescription drugs from going up over time. This is based on the calculations of the year 2021. This is sort of an attempt to stop hyperinflation of the cost of prescription drugs. It won't necessarily lower the cost of these drugs out there, but it does stop some of the rapid increases of the drugs that we've seen on the market for several years, where there's no real change to the drug whatsoever, but now the prices go up, sometimes doubling or tripling. And so this does put that inflationary cap on there, and that does apply across all the markets out there. So employers will reap the benefit of this part.
2: To your point, Chris, about cost shifting to the private sector. So if they reduce the rise of prices that it doesn't go higher than inflation, that might be a sort of a hedge against uh, that cost shift.
1: Yes, this is part of the attempt to, to make sure that the pharmaceutical companies can't just cost shift their There are some reasons that might be difficult to apply these Medicare negotiated prices from B&D across all markets, and they had to stick with this. It's not entirely clear that the parliamentarian would allow this to apply to anything beyond Medicare, which I know is one of the considerations when they were designing this final program, if that would be included. Also in there, something that we're looking at is Part D redesign. So the law also creates an out-of-pocket patient spending cap of $2,000 over the years as part of a Part D redesign. So that would lower uh, the consumer's out-of-pocket costs for prescription drugs. But when you start redesigning it at the plan level, we do have some concerns that Will this possibly increase the cost of the plan? And so the consumer, yes, might not be paying as much money out of pocket, but are they going to be paying it in higher cost of the plan itself? And that's not entirely clear. We are very hopeful that some of these Part D negotiated prices that Medicare will do will lower the cost of the plan across the board, but will some of this redesign possibly increase the price? It's going to take some evaluation. We're talking to some of the carriers and others to try to really figure out the effect on that. There are also insulin copay caps at $35 a month. There are also a lot in this this rule to protect really small pharmaceutical companies, small biotechs to not end up in the Medicare price negotiation system. This is really kind of a design that is for big pharma, not the small biotech firms. A lot of the the exclusion of the smaller companies was something that was really insisted upon by Scott Peters and others who want to protect sort of the small innovators out there, uh, but not necessarily the big companies that we all know the names of. And, And so that was part of it. Also in this provision is a lot to do with PBM transparency. So obviously transparency is a big buzzword at NEHU. We are very pro-healthcare transparency. This will be the first real law that we've seen that will provide for PBM transparency on their rebates to employers and plan sponsors. And so we are looking forward to a greater sense of transparency from the PBMs. So we can really know what's going on more with those rebates and how much, you know, the middleman is essentially keeping in this situation.
2: I've read that, you know, the insulin co-pays that Chris mentioned at $35, you know, there's a voluntary program in Medicare today for the $35 insulin, and it was going to be at 50, but it got negotiated down to 35. This is actually a very interesting look at how we say the sausage is made here in Washington, that... And we've been telling you on these podcasts things are in, things are out, things are, you know, constantly changing. And that this final outline here came together in a very interesting way between Speaker Pelosi, Senate Democrats, progressives, and moderates. And it took pieces of each of those ideas and melded them together into one. And I would expect that there will be further refinements, particularly, In the PBM space, as Chris mentioned, this is something that they're not very popular on the Hill these days, and I would expect perhaps more elements that would affect them in a final process. So I know that's a whole lot to bite off and digest. It is for us too, but we'll continue to watch the process and let you know what other further changes might come along.
0: So which provisions are not in the bill that maybe were before that NHU is pleased is missing?
1: One of the things that NHU has been working very hard on, and we've used grassroots operations and others, was this idea of lowering the age of Medicare to 60. And it is publicly popular. And I think that's because people don't understand the effect that it would have on the market. And this is not included in the bill. And we are very happy that lowering the age of Medicare was not included in the legislation. And I think it's partly because of grassroots operations of health insurance agents and brokers out there that we were able to kill this provision in the bill that would lower the age of Medicare from 65 down to 60. There is no federal Medicaid, which was one of our concerns in earlier drafts. There was a federal Medicaid program. And the idea, which I understand why, was they were trying to deal with states that did not expand Medicaid. So you had people out there who were being uninsured because they did not expand Medicaid. And then the ACA did not apply to them because they weren't making enough money for that. So basically, they used, most of them went uninsured. So they were going to create a federal Medicaid program. Our concern with doing that is that easily turns into a public option. And again, is an area that we would obviously have huge concerns with. We were very pleased to see with that not included again. And instead, what they're going to do is allow those ACA tax credits to go down to get those people so that they are insured, because obviously, NHU thinks it's very important that ev- all Americans have health insurance. I've always
2: felt that the public option was our greatest threat. I thought that the lowering the age to 60 was a reach, but public options seem reasonable. And the fact that we were able to defeat that, I think, is actually a huge win for us.
3: Yeah,
1: one of the other areas that in the the last few months we have been increasingly concerned about for our members who work in Medicare Advantage is the Biden administration was looking for ways of creating more, quote-unquote, revenue for this plan. And particularly with the prescription drug piece not going to bring in as much savings because we weren't using H.R. 3 anymore, they were really decided to look at Medicare Advantage and making cuts to Medicare Advantage, uh, which would then be the savings that they could spend in other areas. We're very opposed to cuts to Medicare Advantage that would do anything to increase premiums on MA. Many seniors don't pay anything for Medicare Advantage right now or pay premiums of a couple hundred dollars a month. And essentially, that was one of the areas that the administration was looking to do to create other savings. I met with Senator Kristen Cinema. She was adamantly opposed to any cuts to MA. She's been a huge supporter of Medicare Advantage from her time in the House. Uh, we work very hard with Medicare Alliance, AHIP, Humana, a lot of the the carriers to make sure that Medicare Advantage would be still a viable option for many seniors. Now, at this point, more than half of all seniors are on MA plans, and we want to make sure that our members can provide those affordable options to seniors.
0: Which aspects of the bill that are still in the reconciliation bill as of now do we continue to take issue with?
2: Well, those are largely non-bumper sticker kind of issues, right? They don't have an impact on scoring. You don't hear the main, you know, negotiators talking about them a lot, but we still think they're really important. And Chris and and Janet and Marcy have talked to committee Democratic staff about them, uh, namely around the civil monetary penalties in the mental health space with regard to network adequacy requirements and to try to refocus them on workforce issues. But you know, it I think that to them, since they don't really move the needle one way or the other, it's something that won't probably be dealt with in this round. But you know, we'll see how it all plays out in the end. And then the lowering employer responsibility from nine and a half to eight and a half without any sort of inflation caps on that is another concern of ours. But again, not a sexy issue, not a bumper sticker issue, but we continue to raise them because our expertise is in markets and how markets are affected and how employers respond to penalties. And we're already dealing with the employer reporting issues in the 226J letters. You know, how far can you push employers with penalties before they just say, you know, I'm I'm done? or this has become too difficult. So I think those are are two areas that we'll probably have to continue to lobby on after this is all said and done.
0: All that being said, do you think that the version of the Build Back Better Act that passes the House will also pass the Senate?
2: No, in a word, right? I mean, look, we've talked for months about the divisions between the Senate and the House just philosophically those differences still exist so the house has to build a bill that can pass muster with their conference and that's what they're doing and you know we've talked a lot we've talked exclusively today about the healthcare stuff but it's actually the non-healthcare provisions where there are great differences between the house and the senate they're including immigration for example they're the way things are structured for the ETIC and other provisions are just built differently than they're going to be built in the Senate. So the bill will move to the Senate, provisions will be stripped out or changed, modified for what can pass the Senate. And I think the real end question is what happens after the Senate passes the bill? I'm going to go back to the House, and is it close enough for them to vote for it? And that's the big question, right? Is are they gonna be willing to vote for that? And and that's the $64,000
0: question. Now, to remove ourselves from legislative talk, Marcy, one of the most pressing topics for NAHU members right now is, of course, broker compensation disclosure requirements from the Consolidated Appropriations Act. This past Wednesday, NAHU hosted a webinar on these requirements. Can you fill folks in on what was covered?
3: Sure. We had, as our guest, Stacy Barrow from Maratha, Sparrow, Weatherhead, and Lint, who is our ERISA attorney outside counsel, and he went through the statute from the CAA that outlines exactly what the requirements are for broker compensation disclosure in the group market, and then also walked through a sample form that NEHU members can use with their clients in order to be in compliance with the transparency requirements.
0: So for folks who missed the live broadcast, where can they access the recording and obtain a copy of this sample form that we discussed?
3: missed the live broadcast, you can go to NEHU.org to the Compliance Corner webinars, and you can go back and watch the webinar there. We also have a link there to the sample form. And then early next week, we will be posting a full range of resources under Compliance Tools to assist you in being in compliance with the disclosure requirements. And part of those resources will include the sample form.
0: So in last week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, we discussed the recent guidance surrounding the national vaccine requirements, and we also discussed it in the Washington Update. But there was one unfortunate error in the Washington Update that we'd like to correct.
3: Yes. So it was said correctly here on the podcast that there would be an allowance for religious or medical exceptions to the vaccine requirements for the large employers. And unfortunately, like Dan mentioned, there is an error in the written form of our Washington update that goes out to the email boxes of all of our NAHU members every Friday that said that there would not be an allowance for those exemptions. So we just want to take the opportunity to make sure that we clarify that with our audience, that religious and medical exemptions will be allowed. It is covered in the FAQ document that's provided by OSHA and CMS. So we'd like to point you there if you have further questions about that, but just wanted to make sure that we clear up any inconsistencies between what was discussed here on the podcast and what you all received in your email boxes in the Washington update.
0: Last week, we discussed the potential for legal challenges to the vaccine requirements. And pretty much immediately following the recording of that, it seems we got one. Is that correct?
3: Yes, it felt as though we manifested that challenge. But I think many people can say that since many folks were expecting that There was a legal challenge and it was heard almost immediately. It was heard over the weekend and the lower court released a stay preventing the emergency order from going into place. However, saying that, I do want to caution that it looks like this is going to be moving very quickly through the court system. And there are other challenges that could be joined together for a larger court case, the Biden administration has commented already that they are planning on fighting this. So this will not be a challenge that goes unchecked and it will proceed through the court system. If you are talking to employers who ask about the possibility of this not being enforced because of the challenges and you know they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. I would caution them that because the implementation date is soon it's January 4th that it is worth them exploring and looking at putting together a policy perhaps not putting it in place while they're waiting for a court decision but at least exploring and looking into what type of policy they they would need to put into place to be in compliance with this should the court rule in favor of the Biden administration. We just wanna make sure everyone is prepared either way the court goes. So in this instance, that would mean being prepared for this large employer vaccine mandate to be enforced.
0: It is now time for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. John, what are we toasting to this week?
2: Well, I'm very proud to toast this week to all veterans out there. They continue to defend our country and stand tall. And I've seen the NFL step up and acknowledge the role that veterans have played. Very proud to be a veteran myself. Cheers.
0: Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit nahu.org.